Can you do it again? Go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're with the regeneration, exploring how people are enabling the regeneration of life on this planet by changing the systems and stories we live by. It's independent media, free of ads and freely available thanks to the support of listeners like you. Thanks so much to you, Claire Broon, for your generous donation and subscription, and of course for organising the event that features in today's episode. Thanks also to Luca, yes, you might remember Dr. Cat, for doubling your monthly subscription amount, and for your recent assistance. If you too sent something worthwhile in all this, please consider joining Claire and Luca, part of a great community of supporting listeners, with as little as $3 a month or whatever amount you can and want to contribute. You can get all sorts of benefits, principally, of course, continuing to receive the podcast with transcripts every week. Just head to the website via the show notes, regeneration.com forward slash support. Thanks a lot. So it really is um, trying to see these solutions in a much more holistic manner. And sometimes we get caught in uh, this sort of carbon tunnel syndrome in Australia or just looking at emissions and we really don't look at the land and the soil and the water cycles of the planet and the habitats. So we really have to approach this in a much more holistic way than we have been and see that our architecture of our system, the engine of our economy, is causing all these things. G'day, my name's Anthony James, this is The Regeneration, and that was Damon Gamo. Over the last couple of years, this good mate and brilliant Aussie filmmaker behind Regenerating Australia, 2040, That Sugar Film and Animal Beatbox has joined me at this time to take a look at the year ahead. Last year happened to land on Valentine's Day. Oh yeah, it's now National Regenerative Agriculture Day too. But like so many things, the two can surely coexist harmoniously. And I know some pretty romantic farmers, not mentioning any names, maybe have a look at episode 78. Anyway, Damon was my podcast valentine. So while he's giving himself and his family some well-earned dedicated time right now, it gives me the chance to share this unique event with you. This was a town hall dialogue that followed a community screening of Regenerating Australia in Beverly, in the wheat belt of WA. Local woman Claire Brune and husband Martin brought together a rare and powerful lineup, featuring prominent local Noongar man Oral Maguire, nearby regenerative farmers Diane Dean Haggerty, locally engaged landscape architect and rural planner Grant Ravel, and Damon online from the other side of the country. Yours truly was host. We start with a profound welcome to country by Oral. Before I introduce our guests, and later, our audience. With love to Damon and you. I was born here, actually, so I didn't, I didn't grow up here, so some of you may think that I'm a bloody ring-in, but my family's actually been uh, right, uh, right around these sort of places, you know. Uh, my nephew from um, Brookton is here, Ronnie Maguire, and uh, the Maguires, the Bennells, the Yarens, the Blurtons, um, and, of course, a lot of the... Uh, the Henrys and the Yugles, uh, uh, obviously from this town, uh, and the Morishes, uh, or the Morachs. Uh, I just want to acknowledge all of those families. Um, so I am part of the, the Baladong Noongar 
uh, clans uh, and, and group, the language group of the Noongar Nation. Uh, and, and this area here, as uh, some of you may or may not know, is part of Balarong Buja. And we, um, as custodians, we actually we hold the spirit of the land through our, our long connection to these lands. Uh, 2,000 generations, 60,000 years, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and we practised and held first law for this land. So all of that is in the context of, you know, these welcome to country, uh, welcomes to country that uh, are about the, the spirit of the land. And we acknowledge first and foremost that we stand on very powerful um, country. These, the spirit of this land is very old uh, and, and it's very powerful. Um, those of you who, who obviously farm or, or lived in, in the country out this way uh, and anywhere and have spent time connecting to, to the spirit of land and country um, acknowledge uh, and would also feel and know that uh, nature is a very powerful force. I think this video, um, having seen it already, is a, is a credit to Damon and, and his team uh, and I just want to uh, welcome you here tonight but acknowledge that um, this is a, a really interesting little uh, doco um, and I think it sort of is quite thought-provoking so um, it's, it's good to be a part of it and I'm glad to see a really good turnout um, here in Beverly Town Hall tonight. So in our Balarong um, Nyunga language uh, we say wanju wanju. Part of the Nunok Nicha Award Hurling and Boja. A Bodoan Nunoka Kalakurling Nunok Wearn Dabakan Hall. So, what I said was um, welcome to the lands here of, of Baladong people. This is Baladong Boja. Uh, there are lots of sacred places and very powerful places. Some of them you may have heard, um, and some of them you may not have. Jiljarin uh, uh, is a place. Uh, further down the road, we've got Guambagain um, or Guabanyin, as it's known, in Nyunga. Uh, we've also got Menjelangin, uh, which is water hatch. There's a little there's a rock pool there. Uh, there's Mandiangin, uh, which is Mandiak, and I think you might call that. Uh, and of course, there's uh, the Gogolja, the, the Yavan River itself. So we acknowledge the hills and the rocks and the sacredness of this land. Uh, I call on the spirit of my old people, my grandmothers and my grandfathers, or our grandmothers and our grandfathers, uh, who still travel and still hold us as Noongar people and yourselves even as human beings. Uh, they still give us that connection to country. So um, I also said that when you um, travel home tonight or when you leave here, that your, your spirit travels, slow, uh, travels uh, safely and slowly. So thank you and enjoy the night. My name's Anthony James. It's a real privilege to be here. I host the Regeneration podcast and I toured this film through Southwest WA when Damon was over here a few weeks ago, which is when I met Claire and how I came to be here tonight. But it didn't start there. It actually started with town hall meetings just like this, but going back probably 15 years ago or something. I had an international development sustainability background prior to that, amongst other things, but that's the short of it. And started to feel like these sorts of conversations were the really enabling mechanisms of good things, just period. 
what we might call you know, regeneration in this context. So to see this happening is awesome. It's also where the podcast sprung out of because then I thought, well, how can we do this in a way that doesn't involve big logistics every time? How can it get out to regions? How can it inspire perhaps more of this stuff to happen outside of cities for people just to get together? Because that is where our trust in each other builds and, and yeah, the ideas and the, and the visions as you were talking about Grant. So uh, yeah, it's a real privilege to be here and I, I'm thankful for you for having me. I'm also thankful for Claire to be putting in the hard yards to bring it together and for you Grant for hosting the night, thanks a lot and to you Oral for your welcome. Thanks indeed for having us on country here to you and your mob. I'm from Wajak Noongar country down in Scarborough on the coast. I do get around the country a little bit and I would like to acknowledge here the Baladong country and culture uh, among our first artists, storytellers and of course regenerative custodians we might say for tens of millennia. I still have to emphasise that to myself. It's something we're still obviously coming to terms with. The format we're going to run with here is mostly engaging with you guys, but we'll start up here. You already know who you're looking at a little bit, but I want to sort of bring you in on how I, my path crossed their paths and now yours. So Oral, AKA the Reverend, long story, another time, we met at the, Re there was a Regen WA conference at Perth Stadium, quite a big affair a few years ago. That's where I met actually these three for the first time. And Oral's place then, I visited a little after that through the organisation he just visited in Holland called Commonland with increasing involvement in WA. To see that indigenous-led restoration of country at Oral's place blew me away. And it's a whole other frame of reference and model of restoration that's magnificent. And then to get a bit further up the road at Diane Ian's place after that conference, which is when we recorded the podcast with, with them over a couple of days, and to see that scale of restoration, 65,000 acres, with those sorts of results was extraordinary. And then to see that they'd actually just had the instance of sheep starting to drink from what had been a totally salinified pond, pool, uh, and they thought, what the hell are they doing drinking out of that? It had purified, it had developed a freshwater lens on top. I mean, things like that have just really, not only struck my imagination, but people right around the country, and like Oral, the world. And Grant, it's the first time we've met tonight, which I'm really happy about just to learn a little bit about his background in, in schools of design and Indigenous studies at UWA as an Associate Dean and, uh, and broader work as a landscape architect and rural planner and indeed connection to Claire and Martin here through all that. And I am intrigued, seeing on your online profile, that you founded the Listening Foundation. That might be another conversation as well. Have we got the man? How are we travelling? Oh, we do. Damon, hello, can you hear me, mate? Not on the big screen. Yes, you are. <laughs> Coming and going. Such, such a dramatic fellow, isn't he? Melodramatic, you could say. All right, because he can hear me, I'll introduce him again just by way of connection. So I first met Damon going back four years now in his neck of the woods. So we'd got around east by that point with the podcast. It had only just started, mind you, at that stage. He was one of my early guests just before 2040 came out, which was his big feature film. Some of you may have seen, and if you haven't, give, give it a look. It, you can 
stream it online easily. And there's a whole 15 minute stretch on regenerative agriculture in that film. So we met then, and I remember actually most of all the cuppa around the kitchen table afterwards where we both exchanged our notes on the things we'd seen around the country. Extraordinary tales of regeneration in various contexts everywhere. And it was the first time we thought, gee, something's up here. And we've continued to see it in the years since, and it's some of what you've seen in the visioning here tonight. So while he's set up now, I'd love to welcome him into the room, particularly as the master filmmaker who brought this to us. Can you give him a big hand in particular? And of course, the rest of our guests here. Tonight. Thank you. Everyone on the stage has, is indeed here uh, giving their time freely. So such is the passion for being in this company and these sorts of conversations. So Damon, I want to throw to you first to bring you in into the room best we can just with a sense from you of what it means to be present and, and having the film screen in environments like this, and indeed some of what you're sensing and seeing that's happening around the country. Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for putting on the event tonight. We ended up doing uh, 62 screenings around the country, and we currently have uh, almost 700 in play uh, from councils to schools to uh, corporations, and so, it's been incredibly heartening just to see the uptake and the response um, to the film, but I think more pleasingly has, has been the flow-on effect, uh, whether that has been teachers that have already brought the curriculum materials into their schools and are starting to teach the kids concepts of regeneration, and they're a really wonderful exercise there where they learn about the different transpiration rates of a native plant um, or an introduced plant, all sorts of interesting lessons. Uh, and also the ideas that have been submitted. So uh, WWF put up a $2 million philanthropic fund off the back of the film for anyone that sees it and wants to start a solution in their own community, whether that's a, an urban food project or a battery, whatever it might be. And just to see the calibre of those ideas that have come in, um, we're over 120 now, and I'd say 80% of them are, are really regenerative in their design and thinking, whether they're Indigenous-led or they're... Uh, looking at new governance structures of how the, the, the benefits are, are accrued or distributed amongst the community, uh, really a lot of holistic thought has gone into them. So we're actually in the process, we've got a screening for the Labor Party in a couple of weeks to say, look, we need $20 million, $2 million is not enough. We want to get all these solutions up and running and then introduce them to the right impact investors and other groups that we can really start this thriving regenerative network right around the country. So I think uh, what people have really understood is that often regeneration has been referred to as agriculture, and, and that's terrific because it's such a beautiful metaphor and example. But now other people are starting to see what can they do that's regenerative in their own industries, whether that is architects or in the energy sector or in fashion, whatever it might be, there are regenerative principles to apply to every industry. And in fact, that's the only way we're going to pull this off is if we do do that across the whole spectrum and look at this in a more holistic way. So. Uh, it's been a really extraordinary few months, but also fulfilled by, by what's been going on. Thanks, Damon. And that is to emphasise to you guys here tonight, ordinarily when Damon's here in person for those 70 screenings or whatever he did, uh, there would be a slide up, which I think might go up later on in terms of the things you can go on with, which include accessing potentially those funds, which will continue to expand. So the fact there's been a huge response is not to dissuade you guys here from potentially entering that too. Can I go to you, Oral, but then by way of coming to each of you, for a sense of what it means to you 
for this sort of dialogue to be happening here and, and indeed a sense of what you're, I mean, having just come back from overseas too, Oral, but even just here, what do you see and sense is happening in the realm of this stuff and, and the possibilities? Firstly, I think that people, all of us collectively, absolutely realise that we are in an emergency um, for our very existence and survival. So, it, it's, and it's not about um, the doomsday or, or the negativity around, you know, the end of the world type thinking. It, it, it's actually understanding, uh, and this is backed by science, it, it's backed by simply, you know, observing the, the weather patterns and what's happening in our own backyard, if you like. It's happening right here where we live, here in Beverly, uh, and it's happening in the world. That, that we understand that, that there is a need uh, for change, there's a need for awakening about what is going on. Uh, so we need to stop the denial from our leaders particularly, and we need to start to understand that, that, that in, a, in a cultural context that, that, that Mother Earth needs us and, and we need Mother Earth. And in fact, we need Mother Earth far more than Mother Earth needs us because this Earth will uh, regenerate itself without us when we're gone. That's, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, and, and it's important that we understand uh, what science is telling us, but we also understand from our own knowledge and our own history. I mean, uh, some of you have lived in this region, have lived on the land for many decades. And I think if you uh, honestly look back over your life, as I do, um, and realise that how things have changed in nature, um, we must admit and accept that there is it is time for significant change and it's got to be en masse. There's no point one or two of us doing a few things. We must have uh, whole populations or significant portions of whole populations committing uh, to and disciplining ourselves around the change that is needed. And Diane, Ian, what's your sense of the possibility, need and possibility, uh, I guess, particularly what you bring to the room as well, you know, around these regions? Um, I guess as what Oral's just pointed out, you know, it is a massive need and it is something that all of us as members of the community need to come together. And I think this um, documentary that Damon's put together gives hope that we can all pull together and do things. Each individual can contribute and make a significant change and, and we do have to get onto that very rapidly and, and work together as a team to make sure that these positive changes can be implemented and put pressure on the governments and so forth to be you know, taking some action instead of just talking about it. And Ian, you, you guys, when Di says that, you're not just sort of plucking hope out of the sky, are you? This is something that you've witnessed over the last certainly 25 years or more of your experience that people are getting stuck in and seeing some pretty brilliant stuff happen. Oh, absolutely. And um, I think yeah, Di and I have been lucky enough to experience that from all around the world. So, you know, you're not just seeing it um, just in one isolated spot and what we've realised um, by all pulling together we can make a big big difference and as farmers and especially for myself to actually be up here we have to get out of our comfort zones um, we've only got one planet and um, we have to look back to um, some of the, the deeper 
um, wisdoms of what's been done and we, we can change things and um, get out there and have a go and do that. Grant, what does it mean to you to see a night like this happen here and, and the sense of possibility for regions like this? Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, I want to echo um, what's been said tonight um, on the panel. I mean, the design emergency is critical. And I think um, that we're all creative. I truly believe that. I think everyone is a designer. And I think design has been misinterpreted in Australia over the years. Um, design is really just an agent for managing change. And we should just draw on that design ethos that we all have. Australians are a peculiar bunch. We love to have a go. You know, it's interesting, the recent success at the World Cup was based on this idea that they could have a go. You know, and that was drilled into those soccer players to get selected for the World Cup. Now, that might seem kind of strange motive, but I do believe the heart and soul of Australia has the capacity to lead the world here to manage change and to be creative in the way we do it. I'm also really interested in the underlying assumptions that we all have that allow us to manage change. I've worked with a lot of farmers over the years and I'm always fascinated with the assumptions that they bring to the table around creative land management. I'm intrigued. Where do you draw upon those assumptions, where do they come from? Um, are they, you know, genetic? Is it just that's the way grandpa taught us how to land manage, so we're gonna do it? Or is, are we listening to the children around the table that are drawing on these new education systems of old wisdom systems as well? So, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued in the storytelling that's associated with that. I've been fascinated in um, the way that farmers tell stories and how they're realised into, um, into action. Yeah. Oh, me too. You give me the perfect segue too because I actually wanted to come back to Damon before opening to the floor. So have your questions ready because we'll come next. Damon, that storytelling that Grant just mentioned and the power of narrative and creating a new narrative, that that's not just sort of the symbolic wishy-washy stuff is actually fundamental to what can enable and empower us on this journey, no? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, that our stories shape culture and then the culture determines what thrives or dies. And um, I think a lot of us may not even be aware that we've been living in a collective story for about 500 years now that's really seen us as separate and superior to nature. Uh, and we haven't lived like that for the majority of our existence. That's only a very new story. And look where it's taken us, you know. So unless we address that underlying story and the metaphor that we all live by, we're really not going to get through this. And I think often we talk about the shiny gadgets and the tech and the EVs and the batteries and whatnot, but that's actually, that's not going to be enough to get us there. We, we really need that cultural shift about what we measure is our success, but also um, how we treat the living world. And again, I come back to what's happening in farming across the world is just such a beautiful and wonderful metaphor for what needs to happen through all sorts of areas. And 
the momentum and the change that's happening in that space. I was actually speaking to a group today in America called Spun that have found a way to map all the fungal networks in the soil to use it as a measuring tool to test the health of the soil and the amount of innovation and creativity that's going in there to actually honour and work with nature again uh, so that we can use that as a measuring tool, the health of the soil, that, that's when we start getting changed. So I really agree with, with the gentleman who just spoke then that uh, we don't talk about that story piece often enough and, and the collective story, what it means to be human and what it means to interact with the living world around us. Thanks, David. And of course, it's, it's everything we're doing right here. So it's not just uh, for the filmmakers of the world either. It's, it's in communities like this. It, it's funny. It's, all, it's occurred to me for a while that in business circles, you've probably heard this saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's been a throwaway comment in, in corporate life and in business life for decades. It's so funny that as a society, we, we've sort of ignored that. Anyway, over to you guys. G'day, uh, really loving this so far. I was, my question is, what have you seen with the uptake of all, this, uh, all these inspiring strategies and, and I don't know, this sort of uh, mindset on approaching fixing the world? How have you seen that in your you know, close by neighbours? Um, probably mostly targeted and Ian and Di, but um, yeah, for, for the rest of you, of course. I guess uh, within the farming community, it's varied. There's some uh, amazing uptake in all sorts of um, parts of Australia and around the world. Um, and there's other areas that, you know, perhaps still looking at it with a bit of scepticism. Um, but certainly there's a lot of science now coming together to support a lot of the findings of how soil health is progressing and making change. And um, when you look at what the parameters that uh, Damon had up earlier with some of the, um, what do you call it, we've overstepped the mark on a lot of those barriers where we've, you know, biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse and things like that, we just have to really take a good hard look at those things um, and how we might be able to, you know, make changes to stop putting pressure on those systems. So I guess it's just all a learning journey for all of us um, to keep trying to figure out how to work that best and yeah working with our First Nations people have got that understanding from way way back um, and how we can integrate that with how we're operating as well. What I've seen and as um, AJ said I, I was in Amsterdam 10 days ago in the Netherlands. We as Australia are limited by the thinking of our politicians in many ways right particularly but also our businesses. So in many areas of innovation and renewables particularly we as Australia, as a nation, as a first world nation, we lag way behind a lot of the European countries particularly. So they're the things that I don't think we've changed quickly enough on and with. And I, I tend to always be at loggerheads with farmers and you know, I, I love what, what Ian and I are doing, but I always suggest that um, farmers never do enough, right? So there's two big industries that impact and affect our, our environment particularly in this country and particularly in this state. And it's agriculture and mining, right? And they have enormous impacts. Those industries have enormous impacts on our natural environment uh, and, and certainly our economy. In fact, we, they lead our economy, particularly the mining or the resources sector uh, for Australia. So, so we've got to, in my view, there, there needs to be, there's a couple of things. From, from a cultural perspective, if we're, if we're going to suggest or speak about things being Indigenous-led, then people need to um, 
not enough people in this country, and I would suggest in this town even, uh, and this is for the, the, the whole community, understand or know enough about our culture and ourselves and our collected, collective uh, history. So we need to understand. So in the Uluru Statement, which I was a part of that, collect, that, that, uh, that gathering of Indigenous leaders globally, uh, sorry, nationally, we, we asked for three things, right? The truth-telling process, which is about telling the truth about what really happened in this, in this country, particularly from our perspective. Uh, the second thing was about, uh, you know, a voice to parliament so that we actually start to empower our voice uh, particularly, but we start to empower the, the truth-telling around Australia's history, right? and us as Australians and as, and as a collective. And the third one was about treaty, uh, de developing a, you know, treaties and treaty processes. So those things are important um, because Indigenous-led initiatives, and, and I've always said this, and I believe this more now than ever, that, that non-Aboriginal Australia has brought nothing that is sustainable to this country. All right? And yet, Indigenous Australia, First Nations peoples globally, all right, have the best sustainability models, particularly around nature and the natural environment. So there is a significant contribution that Aboriginal people, and in this town here, Baladong Yungas, can actually make to the economy of the world and, and, and the local, regional, state and, and international economy. So there's things that, that, that Noongar and Aboriginal people know uh, and there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that we've lost as well, that we need support and, and, and uh, I guess, collaboration uh, and unity for us to reconnect to that. But there's a lot of stuff that Aboriginal people know and, and there's a lot of things that Aboriginal people can contribute to these conversations about what is needed. So uh, I think that there's, there's, there's that issue about truth-telling, there's the issues about understanding that um, you know, I've heard scientists, I've, I've actually travelled the world and I've, I've travelled around Australia many times listening to lots and lots of very smart, well-informed, knowledgeable people um, speak about these types of issues. And I've heard some, a couple of comments that have really stuck in my mind is around um, farming, or that, and it's a global issue, uh, and I've heard chief scientists say that we have, as, an, as, a, as humankind, we've got 60 harvests left on this earth, right? Now we've heard about the importance of biodiversity in the ecology of the natural system. So the harvest issue is about, not just about growing wheat or sheep or cattle or, or, or dairy products or, or any other livestock or any other crop for that matter. It's about understanding that, that the, the, the cropping system and the agricultural systems and us as humans even, collectively, are all part of nature. And we've got to understand nature in a, in a broader sense than just what we want to understand from our own personal economic perspective and context. And whether you live in Beverly or whether you live in Paris, all of these issues are consistent. So I think it's about educating ourselves, opening our minds and understanding both on a macro level and in a very micro level, that there are things that we and people that we can engage with to actually help ourselves understand what it is that that nature needs and, and the change uh, that we've been talking about needs. Oh. And we all can contribute to that. Thanks, Oral. Uh, I mean, bang, the conclusion right there, and that's the answer to your question, is it that there are people right here, right now, and amongst our communities. And I guess 
my journey of learning some of what Oral's talking about has blown me away from First Nations around the country and the world for that matter, but actually being with them on country around Australia in terms of just the level of sophistication. And it's everything they've been saying, but I couldn't hear it. And obviously a lot of us are struggling with that. But if we can listen more, the sophistication of the knowledge system, Western science is finding it to be the most sophisticated knowledge system ever. I mean, this, this is, and they are our neighbours. They are the people, they're here with us, and it's a hell of a gift that, that they're offering, which is amazing in itself, really, in many ways. Certainly I've felt that, to be offered and invited into spaces by First Nations here. But it doesn't stop there. So I've done 100 and... I've just finished the 124th podcast episode with, as it happens, the mentor to, to Diane and Jane, who I finally met in South Australia recently... I had to go weekly, and even then I feel like there should be 10 other podcasts at least because the stories are everywhere. And you talk about the politics, Oral. One of them recently, I'm in the seat of Curtin down in Perth, so I was one of the seats that elected an independent woman to parliament in a historically safe Liberal seat. And I want to firstly say it doesn't matter who you, who you vote for particularly. What I'm more interested in is that out of that phenomenon and what we saw over East, Community was engaged, and everybody says this, community was engaged in the process more than ever. That is good for all of us, hands down. And then the fact that we're getting a representational thrust at some scale at our federal parliament is an amazing story in itself. And that They're our neighbours, and we were part of that. So, yeah, it, it's everywhere. In fact, in the Leaderville screening we did where Claire and I met, and, and what brought me here tonight, I was able to point to that person, that person, that person, you know, Oral's one of them, these guys were on the panel as well, doing extraordinary stuff. And I'm sure, in fact, I know from some of the conversations I've had already here tonight that there are cases amongst you here tonight that are practising at some scale and in some part of the journey, but that are at it as well. So, yeah, big exclamation mark on that. Anyone else? Yeah. How are we going to crack through the arrogance of European people so that we can accept the knowledge of the indigenous people on every continent. That's the challenge. I think we can, um, I look at it in our situation as um, we can just start doing our own example um, on, on what we do and if we can sit back, you know when Di and I uh, looked at our farming module of what we were doing and we realised you know, farming gets caught up in this big machine that just seems to roll on and all this advice is coming in and we follow these things and how can we, we, we stop that because it's a whole financial system that, that actually runs what, what we do. And um, I think by just sitting back and listening, taking that step back and being able to um, just... Set, set the example yourself of, of, of what you're doing. You know, sit back and say, how can we incorporate these things? And, and, and look at your culture of what you're actually trying to achieve there, you know. Maybe put the culture back in agriculture and, um, and look at it a completely different way of how you view the land and the landscape. And, um, you know, we look at it, you know, there's no ownership of land. You know, we're, we're just custodians of that land like everyone else. And, and how we want to leave that land and, and what we can do in all ways to actually bring it back to more natural processes 
why all this is happening around and where it gets caught up, especially in cropping systems, you've got all these massive machinery, which we've all got to do all these things and it just all gets lost and how you can bring more natural systems back into that and, and, and tap into some of the wisdom of the people that, that have been on this country a lot longer than us and, um, you know, we're, we're new kids on the block. It's worth saying, just, yeah. just for a moment, Craig, yeah, yeah. it's worth saying that you say that, Ian, in the context of using that big machinery, but an entirely different way. So just not from a viewpoint of ditching it, you're actually integrating it, which is... Yeah, we do. We spend a lot of time um, changing machinery and, um, you know, you can get caught up and locked in that little cab and you just go for it and you're ripping up hundreds of, hundreds of acres a day and you've got to get out of that and think what's actually happening. So we look at saying, how can we use the efficiency of that? But um, because the world's just not going to stop and stop using that, but how can we actually change the uses of these things to get some more right desired outcomes? And we've all got a long way to go, but if we all sit back and listen and really question what we do, um, some of the out out outcomes are actually remarkable. I might like to add on, on that topic, you know, the, the point that you raised around ignorance. On an educational level, um, and I'll, I'll speak at, you know, Western Australia's Sandstone University, um, UWA, it's been a, a, a deep argument about how do you decolonise a university or indeed, how do you indigenise a university? And I think Oral's right. And I think there's, that's a complex set of questions and there's a set of processes in there that we've got to be honest and brave um, to build confidence around the table to hear the deep truths about how we do that. Now, decolonisation has not worked in Australia right? There's been little achievements on that front. Um, if you look across the colonial world, there's been little improvement, right? But to indigenise institutions, conversations, action is very different. And I think it goes back to the, to the lady's comment earlier, move over, let's create the space for Indigenous discussion, truth-telling, as Oral suggested, knowledge-sharing, and I think that then goes into the great saying of Karen Martin, Indigenous scholar from New South Wales, you know, this idea of knowing, being, and doing. Now, that's a, those three pillars of exchange and dealing with change is, is really important. But I think it is, uh, people are learning now, it is about indigenising the spaces that we occupy. And, and UWA is dealing with that. You know, how can you indigenise an engineering curriculum? How can you indigenise a plant science curriculum and degree at UWA? How does the design faculty indigenise its curriculum? How does it allow a safe cultural environment for Indigenous design professors to teach that challenge? And I think they're, they're big challenges, but I think we've got to, as Oral says, 
we've got to be confident, we've got to build confidence, and we've got to do it at an alarming rate. I mean, you know, we, there's no excuses now um, at universities' levels that they're not um, fulfilling their Indigenous employment strategies. Um, we need Indigenous botanical professors. Sorry. We need Indigenous engineering professors. They're there. I've seen the students, Indigenous students, graduate from those faculties. Right? They're off doing more important work to some degree. But eventually, I think they're going to come back to those educational institutions and change the curriculum. Yeah, and that, I think that'll, that'll give some good results. I hope that, that helps. Well, that's, I think that's part of the truth-telling, because I think I've certainly got family members who've had their DNA testing, and I can tell you that uh, there are thousands of names that come up on Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal peoples, uh, DNA test, and I'm telling you that 90% of those names are non-Indigenous. So part of the truth-telling is actually understanding that if your family has been here for more than five generations, then I'm guessing that you've got an Aboriginal blood in your bloodlines. Um, so knowing our history, and, and certainly we, our history tells us that York was settled in 1832, I believe. 1831, yep. Two years after Perth. So the story of the convicts, which is some of you have been here and, and are descendants of convicts, uh, and, and other more gentrified bloodlines, um, but certainly the convict story is very interesting because the convicts were rejects of the English uh, population and community that came out here. Uh, and of course, when they were released from their prison terms, they were sent forth to multiply and grow the colony. And so put yourselves, the majority of them were men, so when they travelled out here to York or Beverley or this country as it was previous to these towns, who do you think they connected with? They connected with Noongar people and Aboriginal people. So these are, these are some of the facts right, that I see, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a couple of us in this room here who are highly um, engaged Aboriginal people. Your question about non-Indigenous European arrogance is a real problem of the ego of individuals and the collective. Contrary to that having grown or expanded over the, the 190 odd years that this place has been, Australia or, or, or WA or, or York or Beverly, Aboriginal and Noongar specific right, leadership and spirit was strong. So let me give you an example. My mum is 92. Her mum lived to her early 90s, and her mum lived tonight to her 90s. So when I talk to my mum about her life and her knowledge of language or culture or place, she has a timeline of knowledge that takes her back 270 years. Do you understand that? So, so when I stand up here and I speak my language and I speak about places that I know, because my dad died at 49 in 1977, he is my absolute hero. And do you know what he died of at 49? He died of a broken spirit. Because he was to told that as a great footballer, we love you during the footy season, but you can't live in our town, you can't join our bowling club, 
And there are, you know, Ronnie's dad, who was my older brother from Brookton, died just in the last, um, you know, passed away in these last uh, few months. Um, he was the last senior Maguire in our bloodline. So my point here is that there is enormous knowledge. So whether you want to be arrogant about it, there, there are some facts about what actually is. And so the, the, the truth about what is, is unfortunately overrun by what we believe or what we think. And so people sort of underestimate that Aboriginal people in, in this town or in this region, and certainly in this country, and, and Indigenous peoples globally, are, are empowering. We are self-empowering ourselves. And there are people in your midst, Aboriginal people, and I like to see myself as one of them. I know that Ronnie is, and I know that Noel is. So the three of us who are here tonight are empowered Aboriginal men who actually know, and certainly not perturbed by the arrogance and the ego of non-Aboriginal people. Because we are engaged, we are educated, and we are doing things. And, and for those of you that don't know who I am or what I'm doing, the property that you drive, you drive through our property every time you drive over the Dale Bridge. Uh, the trees there, which unfortunately it's not a, it's not a great front because the, the ILC and the FPC um, manage a, a, a sandalwood plantation there that, that is not great. Um, but putting that aside, the real magic on our property um, that these guys have all been to is down the back end of our farm. And we had 54 Noongar people there collecting uh, wattle seed over Christmas last year. And we all know how hot the Christmas period was. Um, Ronnie was one of them. He was there with us. So, so what I'm saying is we, we are empowering ourselves around this very stuff that you watched tonight. Our knowledge is, is solid and it's strong and it's real. And the arrogance of telling us that, that we can't or we're not or we, or we, we won't um, is lost on people like myself because we, we can actually forge our way and grow the strengths that we need to actually have a say in the things that are important. And our knowledge and the knowledge that we hold uh, is very strong within our families and our bloodlines and our clans that, that non-Aboriginal people may not see, see or think or believe or respect. So the point is that Aboriginal people have a very strong contribution to be made. It needs to be respected. Um, and all I'm saying is that the arrogance of leaders, um, we already have 75% of the Australian landmass is in the hands of Aboriginal people already. We need to unlock that because that's a massive asset that unfortunately is held by non-Aboriginal people because of the caveats and the economic uh, restrictions that, that it locks up for us. So we're very powerful, we know that, and we need uh, people to also understand and respect that because that's a really important transition between you know, this issue of uh, disadvantage and, and real empowerment. Thanks, Earl. I, I know there's a big conversation to go on with from that takeoff point too, where you said about the uh, the ability to unleash the potential on those landscapes that, that can't move ahead. Yeah, please, next one. Noel, then. Just want to um, go to the movie or documentary we saw earlier. And at the start of that documentary, there's a very powerful diagram, Damon, that you 
refer to. And what struck me, apart from the, the challenging aspects, I guess from an optimistic perspective, as a nation and as a, I suppose as a world, we made a significant change, um, as you've referred to, to the ozone. So I question how soon, or how, how long maybe, in your minds, would it take for us to sort of tackle all those other segments in that, in that pie that are kind of all out of whack if we you know, band together and I guess that's what you're trying to achieve here with a sort of a, you know, raising the church, if I could call it that, of, uh, in a, you know, of people getting their heads around what we're trying to do together. And do we, do we just start with certain segments or do we have to take this as a, as a whole and try and <clears throat> work on it? Because that's one part of the question. And the second question is, what you know what is the true cost that we need to be thinking about if we could might be too hard to answer that question i love that Noel. you like first question is how do we do everything and save the world and there's another question anyway we'll see how we go <laughs> yeah i don't i know what i'd say but i reckon damon might say a similar thing so over to you mate <laughs> yeah so i think um it's certainly not a linear process. I think sometimes we, we get caught in a linear mindset and, and the system, as we know, is deeply complex and intertwined. And so I think the positive there is that if we do start to take action on one of those boundaries, it does have a very positive impact on other boundaries. So if we start to protect that habitat and plant more mangroves, which holds huge amounts of carbon, restore some of those forests, obviously that boundary starts to come in, but it's also creating habitats for those wildlife. So that boundary starts to come in and we're also sequestering carbon and storing it in that biomass. So the climate change boundary starts to come in. So it really is um, trying to see these solutions in a much more holistic manner. And sometimes we get caught in uh, this sort of carbon tunnel syndrome in Australia or just looking at emissions and we really don't look at the land and the soil and the water cycles of the planet and the habitats. So we really have to approach this in a much more holistic way than we have been and see that our architecture of our system, the engine of our economy, is causing all these things. It's not just climate change, it's having all this deleterious impact across the board. So we need to start shifting those processes in, in all those industries and start to approach um, these things in a different way. So. Uh, in terms of the time scale, I think we have to be very honest with, with how much damage we have done in a very short amount of time. And as we know, um, that it's a lot easier uh, to knock things down than to build them up. So this is going to be a multi-generational approach if we're going to pull this off. Um, but I often like to think of historians in a few hundred years from now looking back to this moment and thinking, well, you know, there were people that amidst the chaos and the extinctions and the misinformation and all the nihilism, there were groups of people that started to step away from that and plant the seeds of a thriving regenerative future. So I think that's incumbent on all of us to be alive in this moment to start planting those seeds for the sake of those future generations. Thanks, Damon. Now we have clocked up time, but you want another question? All right, last one. And then, and then yeah, if you guys want to have a last comment and we'll wind it up. Uh, for the uh, couple um, with a large farm up there, how long did it take you to go from when you started to where you have a nice pond in the middle and all that? I think on that property um, was a matter of about four or five years it would have been. Um, and I think it was just a case of 
rebuilding that capacity of the soil to one infiltrate water, but also have the microbial system functioning so that uh, the waters that came in were handled appropriately so that the salts which typically rise in um, the soil profile were actually held down by microbes dealing with things appropriately and um, filtering the water I guess as it went through the soil profile and then able to sit on top of the salt water underneath which was heavier so the fresh water was able to sit on top. But what we are finding is actually how quick, uh, Oral made a comment there that, you know, um, we need nature, but nature, um, you know, can get along well without us. And what never ceases to amaze me is just how quick things can repair. So the minute you start to back off and look at things a different way and do things a few different ways, just how quick it comes back. And the native grasses that are coming back um, and just the whole habitat that comes back and if, and if we stop actually destructing a lot of that, even in the cropping systems that are happening, just how quick that regeneration happens. You know, we, we look at it, you know, what, what changed our mind is, you know, Di and I spent a lot of years in the Kimberley and um, we're at the age where a lot of the elders there, you know, we we're in our early 20s and they're in their late 80s. And we were able to, it really sat us back to look and see we're looking at things differently, landscape management a lot differently. So that's when we came back into agriculture, we could back down into the farming systems. We could think, well, we've got to do this differently and um, we can contribute our bit from what we've learnt as a white fella to say, we can get into these agriculture systems, but let's just try and start. And we've made a lot of mistakes, but let's try and start to implement some of these things and see what the outcome is. And the outcome for us has been amazing. You know, um, the landscape's grown, it's, um, it's replenished, and it's been very good for us. And, you know, we're just looking at how we can actually continue to learn and actually share that with others to, to try and do our bit as of trying to do the right thing. And do you use less chemicals now as well? Yeah, we use a lot less. And, um, and that's why it's been it's funny how um, intuitive it is and um, how it all works and yeah a lot less you know I'd, I'd probably think we're probably about a third um, to what's commonly used around the place and we've taken on a lot of lot of places that have been degraded and we've probably take, been taking on a place virtually every year and um, yeah how quick we can actually change those back and, and transition them back to a more more natural system we'd probably have and it's not enough, you know, over our landscape, we'd have 15, 18,000 acres of, of natural bushlands and, um, and we intend to, to actually increase that and get more diversity. So we actually have a bit more like a mosaic effect across that whole landscape rather than just a monoculture, you know, happening right through it. So, you know, we, we're just forever seeking knowledge to actually bring into these farming systems where we can actually improve it and you know we're open to learn all, all the time. And I think that's where it comes down to that future together collaborating, um, cooperating and the creativity that was mentioned before of how we can do things, how we you know we've got a lot to learn about this landscape and um, what its potential is, what it was. Um, that's where we need to all work together along that to optimise mm -hmm 
that diversity and, you know, not just producing the foods that we're familiar with as, as white people, um, that there's so many other rich food sources out there which we'd probably do a heck of a lot better when our, with our health if we had access to at a greater level. So I think that's where the collaboration and cooperation comes together for the future and that's what we're wanting to learn more going mm. forward. So, so maximum profitability is no longer the goal? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I... That, that's last on my priority going into a new season every every year. My my first priority is actually um, uh, my people and the people involved in our in our in our farming system, the people around us in our landscape systems. Um, what profit we make at the end of the day, I don't really look at. Looking in hindsight, at actually what comes around is we, we do actually pretty well, and um, but. You know, one year can be up, the next year can be down, but if that is not our focus of how we farm. We, I know if we look after our environment, we try and do the right thing, do the best thing, the money will take care of itself at the end of the day, and it's, it's not our focus at all. I feel like that's a part that perhaps hasn't come up when we talked about the boundaries before, Noel. The, the social part that was in the film and the reinvigoration of regional communities. I mean, I've heard coal communities even in Queensland talk about wanting to be more like Atherton, you know, with a bustling main street again. Um, and that applies to so many towns that we know and love around the country, doesn't it? And I know it's a big part of the vision that you guys hold, and I imagine you too, Grant, with your work. As I said earlier, I, I was in Amsterdam, and one of the things that actually amazed me with their agricultural system over there, or systems, is, uh, and uh, I didn't know this, so I, I learned this while I was there, that they've got these satellite cities, right? There's, there's, there's six of them, and I don't know the other four, but there's Amsterdam and Rotterdam, right, uh, further south. But they have, in, in, in an area that's way smaller than our wheat belt, it's, it's probably smaller than the central wheat belt, uh, they have six million people living there. So their, their agricultural system is highly um, uh, lucrative. And they operate, their farmers operate on no bigger than 80, I think is about the average, hectares. And, and, and so their, their innovation and their um, diverse revenue streams on their, relatively, for us over here, relatively tiny properties um, is quite enormous. And they have things like the community um, gardens, uh, but they also have, uh, you know, they, they self-produce a lot of their uh, dairy products for the for those that are running cattle and so on and so on, but uh, I think so. So I think they're really important. There's lots there's lots of things that we can do on our land that I think we as a as a whole community and particularly Wedgler farmers were doing way better in the 50s, 60s, and probably the 70s uh, when towns like Beverly and certainly when I grew up as a you know as a kid and and as a footballer you know I used to come to these places and loved you know, being a part of and watching the football, for example, uh, and we know that sporting clubs are key parts of our towns. But all these towns in our, in our wheat belt area were thriving communities that had so much functionality in so many areas. And, and the farmers and the farming industry, the agricultural sector, was highly productive and it was highly efficient and it had a lot of engagement, it had lots of workers on farms. You know, the statistics as they are now, there are... Uh, the land mass is still the same in terms of 
the land being farmed, uh, but there are fewer land owners and landholders. So these are, you know, these are some of the issues around why I think things have diminished. And I think getting back to, you know, that holistic system where, where, where the, the biodiversity and the, um, the productivity, you know, looking after the soil, uh, less chemicals, you know, more, more nature-based um, activities around land management and farming, and obviously lots of people. You know, lots of people involved in. I mean, m many of our old people were highly engaged in the farming community when a lot of these places were being set. A lot of the farms were being set up uh, as Aboriginal people. In fact, we provided most of the labour, and it was free. So I think that that's a that's an aspiration that I see where you know communities uh, and the, when when farming, particularly for us out here in these communities, becomes productive and functional again. So will our towns and our um, and our society. So I think that's a that's a dream that you know we should hold on to, and be more open to being inclusive about who is a part of our uh, you know our, our social and community um, entities and functions within towns like Beverley. I want to throw to you, Grant, in case you do feel like having a last comment yeah. before we close up. I'd just like to encourage um, everyone to go back and see the film again. I mean, Damon's done an incredible job in there, and I think we've only touched on a certain amount tonight. Um, I would encourage everybody to go back to the Haggerty's YouTubes, because there's, there's a lot in that. I mean, I, for example, this idea of um, social entrepreneurship is quite extraordinary in the regeneration game. There's an intelligence here that I've mentioned before, but it's incredibly creative, but I think that offers so many other opportunities, you know, in this big game that we've been debating and talking about tonight. Uh, Ian talks about other economies and just talks about um, how lucrative these economies can be. Oral has mentioned the same in the way that he's managing his farm. So I would just encourage everyone to, you know, try to understand this holistic picture because sometimes we can run down rabbit warrens and get caught, you know, and um, the best way is to, you know, play the macro and the micro um, like, a, like a violin in some ways. Yeah. It's a nice metaphor here, <laughs> thank you. And, you know, I heard you talk, Oral, about having dozens of people you know, on country harvesting. And I know that you guys are bringing people back into... So you, you guys are already doing that, bringing people back onto country. It can be done, it is being done. We could do more of it. It's a great uh, spot to end on. I want to thank you all. Please give our panel a warm hand for being with us tonight. Damon, of course, filmmaker. Oral Dye, Ian and Grant. Thank you, Claire, for bringing it together. Thank you very much for being here. My name's Anthony James from the Regeneration Podcast. I'm going to channel my best Damon to close. <laughs> Go forth and regenerate. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>
To hear more of Di and Ian with another unique lineup out at their place, tune in to episode 142. And if you're in or near Brisbane in late March, join me for a live podcast conversation at the World Science Festival. You'll find me at 10am on March 26, talking Regenerating Country, with brilliant First Nations guests Jacob Birch and Zena Cumston. The link for that is also in the show notes. Thanks very much for your many messages and tributes after last week's episode with Carol Sanford. Love is well and truly in the air. And on that note, thanks as always to the generous supporters who've helped make this episode possible. If you too value what you hear, please consider joining this community of supporting listeners so we can keep the podcast going. Just head to the website via the show notes, regeneration.com forward slash support. Thanks again. And as always, if you think of someone who might enjoy this episode, please do go ahead and share it with them. The music you're hearing is Regeneration by Amelia Barden off the soundtrack to Regenerating Australia. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.